For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turboencabulator. English, motherfucker, do you speak it? Hey guys, welcome to the Mechanical Advantage Podcast. Wait. I thought you said we were going to use a new intro uh, with like a car-related topic, possibly a Reddit article. Oh, yeah. What happened yeah. to that? Yeah, I've been browsing Reddit here. Uh, I, yeah, I, I got a, a good, nice gem on this one. So, well, so, so you do. So we, so we are going to try this on this one. Let's do it. What, what right. do you got? I was reading someone said they wanted a pop tune. Oh yeah, the, the what is it? The the verbal tune, where where like you you lift off and it's like. Okay, well at least you know what a pop tune is. I had <clears> no clue. My first question was, what is a pop tune? <clears throat> no, then, you can actually. This is my. And that was this like is oh. my view. This is my view. If you find a tuner who enjoys tuning the, the pop tune or the verbal tune, go to a different tuner, because the good ones don't want to tune that. That's 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 a biased opinion, but that's that's tuning a car poorly, I guess, to make sounds, not to actually make it run smooth and fuel efficient. You're neglecting a lot of things to go do pop tuning. Although I guess oh no, it, what, it's got that's what the cool kids it, do nowadays. <clears throat> I guess t- that if your tuner is tuning to make pop <laughs> tunes, they've learned how to make a lot of revenue. Correct. They've learned how to appeal uh, to millennials. I they probably have a. No. Do they have a killer? What's the generation? Two-step? What's the generation before? Zennials. Uh, after Zennials. Yeah. They're yeah. Those are the guys. The those... uh, the one the ones who rev rev their cars to two step in the parking lot, and then they have their little burble tune. But the car itself, like otherwise, is pretty much unmodded, other than like a huge camber kit. Yes. Stance Nation. Stance Nation. So, uh, last time we spoke, when we discussed how we came into cars and how we ended up in this podcast in general, I believe that was sometime in November. We're releasing it in January, but uh, that was that was a while ago. It so, was a little bit ago. So we got to enjoy some of the fine finer things of, at SEMA. Uh, other than the Bluetooth drive shafts, what was your favorite thing you got to see? The twin turbo swapped LS1 or LS Lamborghini, although technically... Wasn't that at the Garrett booth? It was at the Garrett booth. Oh, come on. Come on. That's I, I'll give him credit. That was one of the most genius booth designs I've seen, is to put a rear engine car with your product sticking up over the engine at the back of the booth. It kind of forced everybody to walk deep into the booth and get engaged. It was whoever put that together either didn't know what they were doing and stumbled upon a genius act, or they really thought that out long ahead of time. So uh, that in their, uh, their, they had a few booth girls. They had I was cool. Actually, actually, actually I have, I may have to take this <coughs> back because the uh, Hellcat swapped Jeep that was sitting outside was actually pretty awesome. Very clean. I believe it was the Hennessy Jeep swapped uh, Hellcat engine. I don't think I got to see that one. It was either Demon or Hellcat. They're the same same jazz. Yeah, I don't think I I saw that one. You didn't like the like motorized couch? I didn't see the motorized couch. Oh, that was wild. They they like motorized a couch and then like drove it to the to SEMA or something. I don't know. You'll have to Google it. That was wild. Okay, I don't think I saw that one. Um, Although else? I think some of my things are modified cars that look very stockish, and that's kind well, of that's what often those are often really boring to me. But they're also far more meticulous and hard to do than anything else. So I I do appreciate them from that standpoint. Yeah, Jeep um, is done very nicely. I give it credit. I'm I mean it, I look at that from the aspect of my race car versus my uh, my hatch. Um, you know, I got the race car that's just a Subaru with like bolt-in parts, essentially, um, and it looks crazy, but the far harder build was putting a six-cylinder into my hatch and make it look like it came from the factory that way. And 
that is far more difficult than bolting huge wings to a car. Uh, not trying to discredit anyone from doing that, but to be that meticulous takes a lot more time. I think you get a lot more views on your your car than you do your hatch. Your exactly, it, exactly, because to build it to the point that people walk by it and don't notice you built it. That's what I'm saying. It's impressive and it was, that it's yeah, not impressive. Exactly. And was, it's kind of one of the things you did. I did with the Jeep for a minute because you're just kind of like, oh. And then you're like, oh, no, that is not just a Jeep. Definitely has the... Yeah, yeah. You walk by it and then you double take. And it's, uh, it's kind of like a holy crap type of moment. And you, it's hard. A lot of people in the car industry that maybe just do bolt-ons, they don't quite grasp how much time it would take to do a swap like that. Um, and, and there's only a few, I mean, there's only a select type of person who would ever want to dive that deep into something. OCD. And very OCD. Definitely OCD. Although I think you might be OCD too, so. I'm not. I'm, I, I still, it's not even this year. It was two years ago. The, the bejeweled or bedazzled wheel weights. Those are still my favorite thing from SEMA. Who, when you see a company from Taiwan or whatever selling wheel weights, that have little jewels like glued to them with, you know, Pikachu and Hello Kitty and all these ridiculous things. And then I wonder how the hell is this company in business and why are they here? This booth has to be a fortune. And you realize that they're, they don't have one booth, but they bought like four booth locations and they tied it all together down a row and they had 15 employees there. This, that booth was bigger than like, I don't know an example company, but like some big wheel companies. Alibaba's expanding, bro. I I have Googled them. If, if there's anyone listening that knows who this company is, please let me know because I would love to buy those wheel weights for the race car. I think it'd look real good. We're going to have the big wings. Uh, we're going to put these little bedazzled wheel weights on it. Pikachu and will they'll, prob- they'll probably get really hot and throw the wheel weight or the the jewels off and then it'll be like all bearings for the other cars and then i'll win the race and that'll be our our new race strategy sabotage it's getting like speed racer or whatever where you like hit the button and things it's like death race but we're gonna do it on the road course in like scca event now you're banned yeah probably after this podcast that's good life's gonna listen to this gonna be banned i mean it's essentially the same thing we're driving around like a mobile oil slick most of the time anyway so What's the difference? You'll probably get more traction if we put jewels. That'll be how we justify it. Uh, huh. The jewels, it's like putting sand, rocks or sand in snow. But we're going to put the bejeweled uh, plastic pieces, fling them off onto the oil slick so that cars can make the corner if we ever lay down oil. It's genius. All right. That's a shout out to Hayward and Adam. I'm, I'm coming. Better add this to the rule book. Yeah. Yeah. So... Speaking of racing, who do we have coming on this week? This week, we're bringing on Harvey Epstein of the Boost Creep. He'll be going through a little bit of his background. Um, but uh, just to give some of the basic background from him, he's a tuner, uh, a dyno tuner who does all sorts of cars uh, from sport impacts to muscle cars, pretty much anything you can think of, basic tunes all the way to full-blown custom tunes. And this was a really interesting podcast to record. Um, We did it inside of his dyno cell. Uh, Myself interviewing him and Nick helping with the interview from afar and recording in Ohio. So this, this kind of posed its own challenges to us just because we were inside a performance shop. I don't know what Nick got to hear from his side, but I got to hear race cars getting fired up and, and revved, and it, it was quite the experience, and it was good to catch up with Harvey. And I, I was going to say, I, once I heard that we had a tuner coming on, I expected to hear cars in the background anyway. So, I mean, I think it was an ideal situation, to be honest. We're in, a, we're in the, the place where the magic happens, and, you know, he had his little, uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the foam walls for all the sound deadening. So at least other than when cars were firing up and revving, <laughs> It should have been fairly decent sound quality, uh, but it, it was it was a, that was an interesting conversation to have with him, and I, I learned quite a bit about different tuning strategies that uh, that are in some ways dated now. 
Um, some people still try them and I got a, a more broad knowledge diving into those. So that'll be exciting to try and get some of the viewers to, uh, to hear that aspect. I, I definitely like how he kind of, his approach to using more of a general scientific method in his concepts of tuning. Um, yep. That also, which, uh, and it's almost been more since we recorded the podcast that I've noticed that. And it wasn't until uh, it was Paul Yah, who ironically Harvey helps out once in a while. Paul um, owns or founded Injector Dynamics. I don't know their full history. Maybe we bring him on for an episode. We can clarify that. But um, Paul had posted uh, different data points. It was like volumetric efficiency and injector dead time and um, uh all of the, these different things. And he, he had said, if you can't figure out what pulse width to, uh, that you need to output of your ECU to reach stoichiometric, then you shouldn't be tuning a car. And this was all hypoth like, you know, all the raw inputs, I guess. And you're not looking at an air fuel uh, ratio gauge. And one of the first people to comment on that was Harvey with an answer. And then there's several other tuners posting uh, answers as well. And that was kind of the first time that that really hit me that, you, you know, these, these guys are diving deeper than just, you know, hitting the plus key on their laptop and watching the gauge go more towards stoichiometric. They, they're looking at the inputs and realizing that they shouldn't have to command X pulse width for this volumetric efficiency um, because it doesn't make sense. They know when they're outside the ballpark, no different than if I'm building an engine, I shouldn't have to be using, you know, uh, five thousandths oversized bearings or ten thousandths oversized bearings if I'm on freshly machined OEM parts straight from the factory. It doesn't make sense. Something's wrong. Uh, so that was interesting. I never realized that. I didn't, those are things in a tuner's head that you don't. Even more funny. I don't, like I said, I don't normally core, I don't normally correspond with other tuners yet. I actually use the same principles when I was started tuning using, you know, the was ideal gas law to kind of understand what I was trying to achieve when I was doing things. And I'd always look at, you know, when I was trying to do theoretical VVT concepts, I was always looking at it from a efficiency standpoint and how my volumetric efficiencies were moving around in the cylinders. Um, so it's, it's more funny that we were using similar concepts having never correlated together. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a side. I don't consider myself a tuner. I can, I can get by and make changes to, to fix a hole in a map um, and adjust stuff at the track. Um, but by no means is that my, my trade. So seeing like the educated background was kind of surprising because up until then I made the kind of an assumption that yeah your 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 inputs and your outputs are you with a laptop and the gauges in front of you and and, and I appreciate that now that's that's what sets a good tuner apart from uh, you know the guy that goes out of business I guess um, is one's using this uh, actual theoretical basis for their tuning and one is just trying to achieve an outcome in whatever way possible. It doesn't matter if the numbers in the tables make any sense as long as the gauge reads right. Yeah, that's and unfortunately that's a dangerous method because you can ultimately band-aid a problem that's just going to A, break and then B, you'll have to retune because you basically tune the problem back in that makes yes. sense. Yeah. And if the change or if the issue changes over time, uh, gets worse or gets fixed. If someone tightens a clamp that was a leaky pipe, uh, your whole tune is going the, the wrong way, no matter what, uh, it doesn't get better at that point. So I guess when you go uh, back to like an old Mustang, you can just, you turn the little screw and then it puts it back into calibration. <coughs> Bump that's fuel pressure. You just bump yep. the fuel pressure a little yeah, that's more. A, that is a, that's always the answer. Uh, when in doubt, bump the fuel pressure, pull the timing, right? 
exactly. Or pull the whole, you just pull the, the nipple off the regulator, just drive around the track all day. Yeah, I mean, if it's a Subaru, you just pull the engine. That's how it works. But no, I'm excited to have uh, have everybody listen to uh, to what Harvey has to say. Uh, he's he's one of the best tuners that that I've gotten to to borrow knowledge from, and that's how I'm going to phrase it. I am borrowing his knowledge. He's he's the man who's helped me out for a long time and taught me a lot with cars, and I appreciate. Uh, what he's done. So it's nice to give back a little bit and, and show off his capabilities. So let's hear a little bit from Harvey. Hey guys. So you were expecting Harvey at this point. Unfortunately, uh, I think I was drinking a little too much of that day and I accidentally forgot to hit the record button. So it we was pretty great. We got, we got like, I think it was like 22 minutes in and I didn't see the little red circle in the top of the screen. So halfway through a sentence with Harvey, uh, I kind of cut him off and asked Nick if he had cl- clicked the record button, and th- that was a, a solid no. So we kind of missed his intro for himself, so we get the honors to attempt to try and do it as good a- as he did originally. So yeah, Harvey had actually just started out as uh, a gearhead like the rest of us, just modifying cars. And and eventually, he had wanted to go to a tuning class himself. So he had actually gone to a tuning class at Super Repair in Boulder, um, where one of the guys had mentioned that, uh, you know, maybe he should become a tuner. And in this is kind of probably butchering it and even uh, condensing an entire time zone uh, or a time span. Um, but he ended up becoming the tuner at Super Repair where he tuned for several years before he opened up his own location um, out in Longmont, uh, just outside of Boulder, and started the boost creep. And since he started the boost creep, um, he's continued to grow his customer base and also teach for different companies, uh, Cobb and EFI University, and help educate other tuners. And he's kind of become the like household name, I guess, for the, the Western <clears throat> U.S. as one of the benchmark tuners uh, to go to for, for not just having your car tuned, but if you're an, a, a fellow tuner to get information yourself. So he's paired up with a lot of smart people. Um, and made a really successful business, uh, tuning upwards of three cars a day. I, I mean, he's tuned or uh, he's booked out for for up to three months at a time. Uh, anytime I want to get on there, you, you better think ahead uh, and hope your you know your build completes since you're booking three months ahead half the time. You you may not have an engine or something in your car at that point. Um, but yeah, that that is the short and dirty intro uh, to who Harvey is. Yeah, I don't know if that intro did much justice. Anyway, let's let's jump into this podcast. Anyway, so we were talking about Cobb and how they are on a manifold uh, pressure, so a speed density tuning setup versus math. And I'm curious on Harvey's, um, I guess, background and opinion on both of those. Oh, I think it's funny that you. you so you're you're approaching that as an experiential thing because you are a uh, guy who's always had at least 450 to 500 horsepower. And I don't think you've ever had a stock location turbo on a Subaru that you own. Oh, the very first one. That oh, was okay. the only one. So that was probably math-based. And anyway, like most of us tuners that use Cobb, we don't use speed density unless it calls for it. And the, the only time it calls for it is when that sensor, that poor math sensor is really out of its element. So when you put a rotated turbo in a car, um, it really, the inlet path is only like, a, oh, 10 inches long before you see this huge filter. And then you've got this sensor hanging down and it's probably only going about, oh, a, a fourth of the way through the tube now yeah. instead of right in the middle of it. So metering air through something like that, a situation like that is impossible, especially when you have surge ports uh, dumping air back at the sensor itself too, when you're letting off the gas. So um, the math sensor just becomes useless on on cars with rotated turbos usually. 
and and it doesn't especially when you let off the gas so returning to idle with a MAF in that location just doesn't work you've got air coming right back at you from the surge ports you've got if you have a blow off valve that's recirculating it's dumping there it just doesn't meter correctly well, so, so to, to i guess counter that being devil's advocate what about having a uh, mass airflow sensor that is properly designed for the pipe diameter and on top of that, what about the old setups that some of the people did with like a blow through math after the turbine? Oh, sure. Yeah. So we know that like even having an oiled filter can contaminate the mass airflow sensor. Typically having it in the in the blow through design sort of location can lead to a lot of problems from contamination with oil, whether it's from a turbo seal, PCV, um, so many more soils, uh, sources of contamination. But the truth is, if you look at, if you were to watch the voltage on a MAF when it's under pressure, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more turbulence or something going on there. The noise signal in blowthroughs has typically been really hard to deal with, and Subarus don't seem to filter it out well. They they really uh, have a hard time with that, and so we get erratic timing and erratic fueling uh, with blowthroughs. In my experience, another the the best blowthroughs I've seen are located in a long straight section with a straight section before and after it. But man, if it's near a turn or anything, and even on an intake, putting a mass airflow sensor near a turn where you can have turbulence uh, can create uh, sensor readings that are very poor. So we, we try to not do that. And when you go speed density from something like that, a situation where someone had to put a blow through in originally, the, the difference in smoothness, not only at idle, but even at cruise, is night and day. So a speed density system really seems to have a much better, easier time than either a blow through or a, uh, a MAF on a rotated turbo or on something big enough to really um, mess with the MAF's ability to, to be calibrated well. Uh, you know, so for instance, putting it in a, a five inch tube, it really is only gonna see uh, the boundary of, of the edge of the tube and the airflow behaves really strange compared to the center of that where when you have just a small tube that the MAF is sticking halfway in, it can really get a good sense of what's happening in that tube overall. Yeah, so you get a little bit of like the boundary layer, the, I guess, velocity reduction, which may give you a- Yeah, I don't know. Poor... You're more of an engineer than me. I'll say, I, I, try to, I try to think about these things, but my dyno is ultimately like golden for me to, to listen to. And then if I have a big question with something like that, I'll hook it an oscilloscope to like a MAF sensor and look at the voltage there which is uh, gonna give you a way, a way more realistic picture than even logging software from Cobb or any, any aftermarket brand like that if you really want data. Sometimes you have to go to uh, better equipment. Um, but I'd say you know a lot of the equipment that we use in the Cobb stuff is certainly sufficient for calibration. This is just for like finding strange anomalies where you're like, oh, I wanna try a blow through and, and let's see why it's not running well. Uh, once and for all, I'll say the oscilloscope's the ultimate tool for watching things like sticky injectors and misfires. And then w once you understand that, that, wow, I can actually see an injector open one time uh, for five milliseconds or, or, or 0.8 milliseconds the next time it doesn't open at all. And I can actually hear that and, and that whole event took 0.8 milliseconds or whatever it took. Uh, you get to you get to not you no longer question whether um, whether you you can diagnose things quickly or not. You start to have more confidence in your diagnosis when you when you see the the basis of of why you know you hear a misfire and you're like oh that's a bad side feed injector. I've heard that before. These modified 800 cc side feed injectors all do that. When you start watching it on an oscilloscope, you get you get confidence in your in your ability to read it and and to the point where hopefully you don't have to hook that thing up over and over again <laughs> well and is that one advantage in your opinion at least this is what i see always being on standalones one of the hardest things is understanding a misfire and from like a cob or, or a, wow. uh, some sort of software that's flashing to an oem ecu you can at least tell which cylinder it is. yeah oems have very good individual cylinder detection for all sorts of things nowadays there are aftermarket ECUs. We're talking about the MoTeC. The MoTeC can see not a misfire, but it could. It probably could calculate. You could program it to calculate a misfire detection system. Um, but uh, I'll say, yeah, it's it's really pleasant to have a lot of the OEM stuff in the background of the mapping. I think, I think, being a Cobb Pro Tuner, um, the accolades don't even go to Cobb. They go to the guys at the Subaru factory who are doing most of this warm up enrichment and doing all of this. Uh, 
good tuning that we don't have to redo when we put in bigger injectors and, and define these things. Jose, yeah. I feel like you guys are about to touch, you're touching on one of the debates on the internet, which is about uh, changing your intake and how, you know, some people try to change your intake, don't tune. Some people, you know, won't tune. Like, essentially they'll, they'll change their intake and they won't tune. And then people blame that on why they blew up their engine. Others yes. will. I, I have heard all of the same debates you're, you're mentioning. Do you need a, a tune when you swap out to, from an OEM airbox to some cold air intake, but if you use the Cobb one, you don't. If you put an up pipe on your car, you maybe do, you maybe don't. That's an interesting oh, yeah. set of questions. It sure is, yeah. Of, yeah, what? So some intakes that Cobb built for years from 02 through 07 for the WRX and STI, I believe had the exact same scaling, just like the SPT intakes as the factory uh, pipe and we would see no need for tuning with those intakes. Uh, in 08, Cobb started putting a sticker on the intake where you bolt the math that said, do not install this without a tune, but they're not the only company that was making intakes this whole time. All these other aftermarket companies probably did require uh, tuning, but if you can calibrate, or not even calibrate, but if you can design an, a, a, a math holding pipe that matches the factory perfectly, there should be no need to recalibrate that math. Uh, in that pipe and that's we see that with a lot of GM sensors that are actually part of that tube that you can't they're immutable you see it on the Evos all the people that even make aftermarket Evo intakes keep that factory pipe um, just for the reason that those cars hate it when you start messing with things um, but Subarus you can pretty much recalibrate the uh, math for most intake diameters and there are there is a variety of intake diameters up to about 82 millimeters where you still get good resolution you can tune a car just fine on it and uh, and still run the factory intake style. Um, above that, you know, you're starting to get into rotated territory again. You probably go speed density. And um, really, you know, when we talk about the difference between mass airflow sensing and calibration and speed density calibration, at the end of the day, you're, you're really trying to do the same thing as you would with a carburetor or distributor. You're looking for ignition timing at the spark plug at the right time, and you're looking for the right air fuel mixture in the cylinder. How I achieve that, whether it's uh, alpha N, um, carburation, um, speed density, or mass airflow is, is not the important point. The important point is that any of those systems are calibrated real well, very well, to where the sensors are, are giving the computer an accurate idea of engine load and of mass entering the engine. So mass airflow sensors do it intrinsically. They just measure the mass of the air entering based on how the air molecules cool down a hot wire. It's directly related to the mass of, of, of air that's hitting the wire. So as it heats it back up, it, it has to use a certain amount of voltage, and that's what you get is the return voltage. Uh, so the higher the voltage, the more uh, required to heat the, the sensor, the more mass of air is hitting it. And it's a direct measuring device where when we talk about mass uh, or manifold absolute pressure or speed density, uh, those are two terms for the same thing. We're talking about using the ideal gas law to calculate things, uh, the mass from a variety of sensors. We, we definitely need uh, the absolute temperature, the absolute pressure, um, and, uh, and, um, and, and we can gather the mass from that. Uh, the ideal gas law is an easy way to calculate uh, the mass of air. And we use it not only for speed density tuning, but I think you use it at work to, to, to define compressor maps and calculate how uh, turbochargers work as well. So it's really, the ideal gas law is this beautiful thing. It even defines how, um, how combustion works in the cylinder. So after we're done calculating how much air goes into the cylinder and everything, and we turn off our little calculation for how long the injector has to be open to mix the right amount of fuel with that amount of calculated air uh, using the ideal gas law, we can go inside the cylinder and say, hey, this, has, uh, this fuel has this brake-specific fuel consumption number, which means this, this much energy is going to come out of this fuel when I light it on fire and I have this much air and this much fuel, and you can actually calculate how much cylinder pressure you're going to get when you, when you start the, the fire because you've also compressed it down and released this chemical energy uh, at, at this like small compact point in, in, the, in the ideal gas law says, hey, wow, look at that. He's got a lot of pressure. He's got a, a lot of heat, and now let's release more chemically and, and expand this, uh, this pocket of gas and push this piston down. So it's really, uh, I love 
uh, this has nothing to do with speed density tuning, but, but just saying that the ideal gas law defines combustion, the way our turbos work, the way our intercoolers are efficient, and the way that our speed density computers calculate uh, fuel demand. Well, so and I mean, really cool. kind of a tangent off of that. Um, so in your, uh, your energy, I guess, per molecule of, say, a, a normal gas, like a pump gas, versus your E85, uh, some people don't quite understand that, you know, your E85 may be cheaper and, and you'll get, you'll spend less on it, but you'll end up actually using more fuel uh, per mm -hmm. combustion cycle. And I, I guess to, to put that as simple as I can, um, that fuel, uh, that ethanol actually doesn't have more energy per molecule. It has less. But it has less. Mass. Yeah. But the stoichiometric ratio, the happy place, uh, you have to put more molecules in uh, per combustion cycle. So yeah, you, enough more to overcome that less per mass. So we have less energy. Like if I have a gram of each gas in ethanol, I, I have much less energy in my ethanol. Uh, by about 30%, but I have to add 60% to get stoic. So I've got a, you know, that extra 60%, but I was down 30%. Maybe you get like 30% more energy in theory. I don't know if that's how it works. The, the, the real deal is that it cools and it has super high octane. So uh, with any fuel, the energy that's in it, we can only push the tune as hard as we can uh, deal until it starts knocking and detonating. And that octane is, uh, is sort of a resistance level to that knock and we can push the ethanol much harder. So even if it has less energy in it per mass, we're A, using a lot more mass even to reach stoic, but B, we can add boost and add timing uh, till, till, it, um, till it starts knocking, which it doesn't on ethanol. And it, it, it just makes more power and everybody's happy. And that's why we need the dyno more than anything with ethanols and, and high octane um, fuels is we, we need to know when to stop because you can keep adding more ignition timing and it might be a good thing, you know, and there's a lot of street tuners, I think, that used to tune on gasoline that would use knock as a, as a sort of a compass needle to say, hey, is this tune done? Oh, yeah, it's knocking. We better back off a little. And, and that's where they would leave you. Uh, with a dynamometer, we don't have to do uh, things like that. A, they damage the engine. And B, uh, we can usually see what peak torque is um, by using the dyno. And just if we add a degree of timing and the power doesn't go up, we take that degree right back out, you know, and it's like, hey, we're done. Uh, the, the compass we use is how much power am I making? And I think that's a way better goal if your goal is making power, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. I, I was going to say, so, uh, yeah, I, I actually, I used the old school method of, oh, it's, it started knocking. I'm going to have to start bringing timing back down. Uh -huh. um, but I also would look at uh, basically clicking on like mass airflow as it would kind of increase. Eventually I stopped seeing an increase in my math voltage. Sure. So yeah. I'd start, essentially I was running out of, I was no longer bringing in any more air um, or eventually I'd cap out the math and then I'd say, Oh, well, I guess I've maxed out how far I can go. Yeah. Um, which I guess is one, like maybe one of the advantages of math versus map is the fact that on a, a speed density or uh, map based tune, you basically have infinite amount of power you can make because you're not limited to the like diameter of your intake size. You're always limited by the map sensor itself and that's it. Well, so a three bar. Yeah. yeah you, it's, but you know, you really can go into no man's land and, and sort of uh, cross your fingers and pray if it's a race car and you're like, Oh wow, I want to run 32 pounds on my, uh, three bar map sensor. Yeah, you just increase that last yeah. set of uh, and, the rows. Because the computer's not going to extrapolate or it has no idea where to extrapolate to. It just goes leaner and leaner as you raise it. So it's always sad when the boost hose pops off and it keeps going leaner. But it's it's interesting to see that, that sometimes when you run out of resolution or the ability of sensors to read, people will resort to those types of, wow, let's just send it. And in fact, if you look at the factory... Um, fuel strategy for these Subarus, it really just closes its eyes to the to the inferior oxygen sensor and says, okay, we're just gonna deliver the fuel we think we need to. It, it has no fuel pressure sensor or anything. Um, it just does its thing, it's open loop, you know? So even the yeah. OEM has kind of a close your eyes and floor it approach <laughs> to fuel. So, so in terms um, of fueling and air fuel, I think that's a good point to uh, I guess pose the question of 
what in your opinion is rich and what is lean? And, and I'm going to pose that question very open, open-endedly um, with the basis of, we all know that stoichiometric is your happy, happy zone of, you know, you're burning equal amounts of air to fuel. Um, and it's happy, but when, you know, when you're going into boost, you're rich um, usually. So yeah, just explain some of that and what you see on the dyno. What, what are the thresholds that you like? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think uh, anytime you have uh, the, the, the higher the output, the engine that, that's a smaller displacement engine, you're going to need more and more cooling. I'll start by saying that going richer than stoic typically doesn't yield much power. And that's a really controversial statement. It's something we teach at EFI University. We run a car all the way from about 16 to 1 down to 9 to 1 and back up. And we uh, hold it steady state and wide open throttle the whole time. And uh, the, the, it would be surprising to everybody. I'm not going to give away the secret, but to see how little the difference is uh, in most of that span. We're talking less than 10 horsepower uh, at wide open throttle. But uh, I'll qualify that, that, that we're not running it at redline. We're not running it at its peak output, at peak boost. We're just doing it at like low boost uh, of two to 3,000 RPMs, just so we don't damage the engine and show the example without causing harm. Um, so uh, going back to that and saying, hey, stoic, anything richer than stoic doesn't um, really give me a lot of power, then, then why do we go richer than stoic? You, you can see also that there's a trend towards small turbocharged engines to run much richer than say an LS uh, NA engine in a Corvette um, that, that doesn't have any sort of supercharging, although some of them do. But the, the normally aspirated engines, their targets are 12, 8, or 13 to 1 from the factory, where Subarus and Evos, you know, we were talking 10, 5, 10, 4 uh, in the early 2000s is what they were running. Uh, there's a very good reason for that. If it doesn't do anything for power, why are they doing that? It's because the output of those engines is the same, and one is uh, has a lot less mass, so we're doing component protection with, with fuel. The extra fuel is nothing more than a coolant, and I, that's such a controversial thing because we see people say lean is mean, and we say guys at the drag strip say, oh, my carburetor must have gone out of tune, and I lost a tenth of a second today. Uh, most of that is, is nothing to do with that, but we... Um, we can show you on the dyno uh, plainly. And, and at the end of the day, I'll say I tune uh, sort of fuel curves for safety and different types of uh, engines, uh, smaller engines like richer um, mixtures if you're making more and more power out of them. If I'm making less and less power, I can go leaner. Also, motorsport, different motorsport disciplines have different cooling requirements. If I'm gonna do a, a hill climb car, uh, that's going to be pointed up a hill in the hot summer uh, and not breathing through a clean filter and, and having a, a muddied up intercooler. Uh, those cars aren't going very fast. They're going up a hill and shifting and hitting switchbacks. So those guys get a nice rich mixture where an eighth mile guy might get leaner than a quarter mile guy might get richer again. Um, and time attack guys, I like to keep you guys a little bit on the rich side because uh, we don't, we, we like component protection aspect of that. Um, air fuel ratio also has a lot to do with tip in drivability um, and and uh, mileage as well. And I've even seen strange examples. And, and every engine's different enough that I've seen strange examples where I had an engine once that liked to run a little bit on the rich of stoic. Um, this was before we had great injectors, so who knows? Maybe I was like too rich on just one injector, but it, it got better mileage at about thirteen five to one than it did at at fourteen seven to one. And I don't know why at the time I, I had some ideas about maybe it was making more energy at the wheels enough to overcome the non-stoic mixture, but I really don't know. But that's the beauty of having data to look back at is that these engines are um, incredibly individual and, and, and we like to use a dynamometer to sort of tease out the, the individuality of each of the engines to make it the happiest it can be for the customer. And usually that's for, not for motorsports events, but for just a streetcar or something that someone treasures and they want it to last a while, but still be fun on the weekends or fun when they're, um, when they're, when no one's looking. Yeah. You're pretty good at, uh, at stumbling right into the, the things I want you to, to answer <laughs> without me asking. Uh, I was going to say, it's, that's kind of funny on the, on the gas mileage thing. Cause it's like, that doesn't make any sense in no. reality. Like. You, no, you should, you should, it should never like technically, you know, 14 to one or 14, seven to one is going to use less fuel than 13 just because that's the ratio. Like that's the yeah. ratio. And there's um, even leaner mixtures that people can target as well. Yeah. And I've, uh, so 
I know I've, I've heard of people running on the opposite side of lean in cruise conditions to like, and that's actually what essentially the OEM does when you like decel, it basically turns off the injectors and lets you run, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, but there are lean crews in like, uh, what is it? Mazda does the um, Atkins cycle and such. Yeah, uh, and they run like on the opposite end and they still are actually cruising down the road, which is kind yeah. of crazy. Which yeah. I think kind of, uh, I mean, that brings kind of one of the topics that people like to kind of debate about is like after you get a tune, your fuel mileage goes down. But in reality, you're not actually changing anything in your cruise portion. It's just... You now uh -huh. start going, it, like, you start getting into the throttle and going far beyond where, you know, you start basically... Having fun. Yeah, you start <laughs> having fun. You start using more fuel. And that's one of the questions that I think you, like, barely uh, touched on that I, that I have had. Um, I guess it's less of a question, but more of the fact that, uh, for me, I watch gas mileage go down when, like, you've seen the jumps I'll make. It'll be basically going from like a stock setup all the way to a full blown 2000 CC injectors. And um, like just how, how does injector sizing affect the air fuel? Yes, you can compensate it from tuning, but my understanding is you have the upper end and you're allowing the bigger injector to let you ram more boost in there, more fuel, but then you're also reducing the resolution uh, down low. Um, with such huge injectors, you only have so much pulse width, or so much of a minimum pulse width that you can command when you're at idle or something. Yeah, yeah, the 2000s, I've had some issues with 2000 cc and above, uh, which are 200 pound for the uh, Imperial guys. Um, those can be troublesome at idle, on, especially on gasoline, and especially on gasoline at really high elevations where the air is so thin, and then you're trying to deliver uh, even less fuel to this thin air uh, because the mass is less. Uh, it can be so hard to get an, an ID or any 2000 CC injector to idle on gasoline at like 11,000 feet. That's, that's insane. But um, I'll say overall, most, you know, if, if we, we have great resolution with large injectors, even the new 2500 CC IDs are able to idle uh, fairly well, even on gas, if you're, if you're willing to target a little bit richer mixture. But I'll say it's a ridiculously large injector and you're always going to lose a little bit of resolution, but the old days we had no way to even get a car to idle like on 700 cc injectors you would have cars that you could spend all night tuning and anytime you let off the gas it would just die so we've come a long way and i think this this current resolution uh that we have with port injected injectors it really has nothing to do with how hard it is to deliver direct injection uh small pulse width uh fuel packets and how to calculate how much fuel is coming out of your direct injection rail. Uh, that must be just much harder. And I know even regulating rail pressure for direct injection is kind of a, a tricky, um, a tricky calculation for the, for the mechanical pump that has to make 2000 PSI or target that. And then, and then using that data to deliver the right amount of fuel is tricky because the, that pressure is really spiky. I mean, if you look at it, even on, on the log data, it goes up and down by a couple hundred PSI at wide open throttle. So that can be a huge difference in injection uh, time requirement. And these cars are able to handle it really handily on direct inject modern cars. But I'll say we've been able to handle uh, good mileage and, and good fuel delivery for probably the last 10 years. I don't think an ID2000 at cruise is any different than an ID1000 at cruise. You can get that same stoic mixture on all four cylinders if that's your goal, uh, which it usually is for crews. And uh, thus the mileage should just be the same. I'll, I'll say there are small topics uh, that, such as injector timing, like when do you inject the event. Um, with port injected engines, a lot of people don't get that 100% uh, duty cycle is the full 720 degree cycle. So you're actually, a lot of people think you can only inject fuel almost like direct injection when the intake valve is open, but you can puddle it on top of an intake valve. So you literally have the whole time from it opens till it opens again to, to spray it. And it can actually puddle and wait for the combustion cycle to be done and the exhaust stroke to go away and then the intake valve to open on the intake stroke. Uh, you can actually store fuel there. So a really large injector in theory could give you better control over your injector timing event. So you could even inject only while the intake valve is open and see if you can uh, optimize mileage or whatnot. But um, 
that's one consideration for a large injector in mileage. Another one might be the spray pattern. You know, these different size injectors have different spray patterns and one may um, do better at cooling the valve and, and then thus vaporizing. And then that can actually help with, uh, with mileage, I would imagine, in, in getting a better mixture, being able to vaporize the fuel uh, rather than having droplets that aren't mixing. Because even though you're doing this mass mixing equation trying to, uh, there are times that with big enough injectors or poor atomization or a really cool intake trap track that isn't going to allow for um, any vaporization, you know, if the temperature doesn't, isn't hot enough, uh, just like a cold running engine, you may have droplets where you have to go richer than stoic just to really achieve stoic because uh, some of that fuel is locked up in droplets and not vaporizing and mixing with oxygen. So that's that's some interesting ideas. None of it, is there a good way to test any of those interesting ideas for me here at a simple dyno? Yeah, I was going to say, I think even OEMs have trouble doing some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and some of the kids do it though. That's like the great thing is some of the research schools. Like I know uh, I was talking to one guy. Um, oh, who is it? Billy Godbold. He works at CompCams. His son does a lot of research on direct injection and injection. And I try to follow that on Facebook sometimes. Well, but, and uh, you know when you mentioned you have uh, or had Robert Urban working here. He's uh, oh yeah. He's one of the guys to talk to. He he took a bunch of the combustion stuff uh, when I was in school with him and oh yeah uh, yeah him and asher they had they had done some crazy stuff they, they would be some good guys to maybe get on the podcast cast oh at some yeah point. um i guess moving on from air fuel stuff um another thing that's kind of always been a i guess online debate is ignition timing uh-huh and uh, this is a really broad topic so i'm going to just narrow you down so we can just talk subaru since I'm the Subaru guy. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, you have some tuners running, uh, saying that, you, you know, you shouldn't go over 20 degrees up in boost. And, and then I see other tuners doing more, some doing less, some staying with like factory ignition maps. And I, I've just heard some interesting things when you were telling me about, you know, when you're revving really high and how you want to start that combustion event sooner, since you, technically you have less, actual time to develop combustion. Yeah, um, the, the flame front should, as long as the fuel's the same, it should travel at the same speed and pressures are the same in the cylinder. The flame front is traveling at the same speed, but as the engine turns faster and faster, since that flame event takes the same amount of time, uh, the theory is that we want to push the piston uh, at the optimum angle. And it's not just one push, it's actually the combustion, as the combustion event occurs, it's pushing down uh, as it's happening. So the, the optimum angle, something like 15 degrees after top dead centers, where if, if you could, if you could give it all the force there, it actually makes like almost like a 90 degree. It's like a tangent and it, and it helps push the crank around in a circle uh, without, you know, trying to push either the rod through the bottom of the block or uh, other directions that the vector force would not be con conductive to pushing that tire. Um, we're really trying to get that explosion to push the piston as that rod angle and that crank angle uh, hit that 90 degree, that's the sweet spot, right? And so if we can get that at like uh, 15 degrees after top dead center, they say, depends on the rod ratio and stuff like that, but you, you really want to get the, the most push at the best mechanically advantage spot. Yes. There. So there we go. The sales um, pitch within the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if we can, if we can, uh, and turbocharging is really good at, at making that push last longer without the peak being higher. So that's why I think it's, it's neat and counterintuitive that we can make like double the power without putting double the stress on the rod um, because, just because we're pushing longer. Um, so really cool stuff there. Um, but anyway, getting back to ignition advance, uh, what we really want is we want it not so early that, that, that uh, it, the piston is, it, that the flame happens before the piston even gets to top dead center. Uh, that's pre-ignition and the piston will actually try to go backwards. And, uh, and actually the ideal gas law comes into play there in horrible ways and melts piston tops and things like that. But we, we want it to actually be burning as it's on its way down and as that pocket is expanding and pushing away. But even so, the ideal gas law again says, hey, your volume is doubling, so your pressure is half, you know. So uh, combustion's a really hard game um, to optimize. Um, and I'll say the, the considerations for ignition advance are things like um, when we talk about Subarus, uh, what RPM am I at? So any time that the RPMs are faster and faster and the flame front happens at the same speed, you have 
to give it more and more timing. Um, so what do you typically see in terms of um, like some, if you're tuning a streetcar versus a race car or something, what would like numbers be that you might see on the dyno? Ooh, that's a, you know, it depends on the, the thing, because like, if you go with it, there's a, a really knocky engine called a two one nine stroker, um, man. And that might only want eight degrees of timing, but like your typical, the, and the newer STIs for no reason, starting in like 15, 16, they liked a lot more timing, even from the factory. So those ones might start at 13, 14 degrees from the factory tune, which I think is too much, but I'll, I'll just say that ultimately we use the dyno to tell us the answer to these questions. And some of the cars that follow trends, whether it's the eight degree 219, uh, if people put in these brisk spark plugs and run E85, it becomes like a, a almost normal timing map for gasoline on an EJ that isn't the 219. But um, I'll say it's nice to have a dyno because despite what I think about timing, I have had cars that like no or flat timing. Um, and the consideration of, of uh, how fast the RPMs are is one, only one of those considerations. The other huge consideration is volumetric efficiency. So um, really the, the, the fact that we're starting a spark at this moment has a lot to do with how close together are my oxygen molecules at this moment. If I have a lot of VE and I'm making a lot of torque, that's when they're the closest together. So my flame doesn't have to travel as far. So it can, I can give it less timing because those molecules are so close together that the flame is going to propagate faster and give me the right angle of when, when I get the most pressure. Uh, so you need less timing. Usually the least timing you'll ever have in an engine is at peak torque. That's certainly true with Subarus in my experience. Um, and then the most timing you'll have is usually at redline as the volumetric efficiency is falling off. Uh, so we see that as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's another consideration is these molecules are going farther and farther apart. If you have a cam in the car that the VE falls off, you're certainly going to be able to give it more and more timing. And hopefully the dyno will give you a result because even though you may have this setup that you think is that way, if the dyno says, Hey, it doesn't want more timing. You just don't give it to it. And you might even be like, wow, whoever adjusted these valves fell on something magically amazing because this car doesn't want timing and it makes good power. So again, we have to fall back on the dyno, but we can get a good clue. If I get a car with stage five ported IAG heads and uh, GSC cams and stuff, I'm going to start with such low timing because I know the VE is very high uh, from that combination and that I don't want to start with too much timing. And I, those molecules are going to be packed in tight. So, they, so typically you would say the more the VE, the, the less timing the engine typically yeah uh, demands and then yeah anytime you have tighter and tighter molecules in the cylinder uh that flame is going to travel faster from molecule to molecule so the ignition advance can be lower at that point because the flame will get to where it needs to be faster and and, and then we want it at that again it, as the piston's going down uh, the bore we want it to happen about 15 after and 15 is just a rough number honestly we want the dyno to tell us like hey this is when you want it to happen because whether it's 10 degrees or 40 degrees after top dead center that, that the peak pressure occurs, uh, we're really trying to get the most pressure to push the tire the most, and, and the dyno can tell you that. So uh, as I make changes to timing, sometimes I'll make changes to timing, maybe two degrees when I think everything's done, I might give the whole map a two degrees more of advance, and I won't see a difference anywhere but one lump at like peak torque or something like that, and I'll be like, Oh, look at that. I missed some timing and I, and I want to put it in there and then ramp it in the rest of it. So the dyno can be used to tell you that. And then because the rest of it didn't change, I take those two degrees back out and I might even take a third one out. And if I take that third one out and I lose 40 horsepower, I'm like, oh, I better put that third one back in there. <laughs> Why is this one so sensitive? Uh, we would never lose third 40 horsepower from a degree, but it's a, it's an exaggeration, but it, it's certainly the way we approach the dyno. That's the other thing is a lot of people, I, I remember a friend of mine was sitting on the dyno uh, and he was kind of a guru and I had just started tuning and, uh, but he was wanting to know, he looked at me and he said, how do I know I can give it more timing, Harvey? I'm so scared. What if it blows up? And I was like, well, why don't we give it less timing then and see if it, if it loses power? Like if you just take out timing, we have a dyno, it's free. Um, let's take out a degree and sure enough we took out a degree and nothing happened to the power curve and it was like well should we give it more timing no hell no let's let's stop people don't want to look at the backside of things i think that's the other interesting uh, one they want to push harder and harder 
but then they get confused and they're like, wow, how do I know this? And it's like, you know it by going backwards the safe direction. How about that? And it's, it's, a, it's, a, nice, it's a nice tool to have is a, a safe approach. Well, and that makes sense. Um, I, I'm kind of curious. The, this is one of the other things I, I kind of wanted to touch on. And I want to hear both Nick's explanation and yours, because I think it's more of an opinionated, uh, uh, maybe staged question. Um, okay. But, but the idea of whether you would go with higher timing at a richer AFR or lower timing and lean it out as a lot of, as you mentioned earlier, lean is mean. You can make in theory, the, or the whole rumor, you, you can make more power by running leaner, but you can also make more power by running uh, a little more timing. Mm -hmm. um, so like which strategies would a tuner at least attack first, I guess, before you back off? Am I going first? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, sure, go ahead. I'll go first. So uh, it, uh, how I approach it, I look at it from the aspect of fueling. I kind of do my fueling first and then do timing. So typically I'm going to run on the richer end mostly because I have a more uh, open loop fueling strategy. So once I define my fueling strategy, that most likely won't change as long as the sensors don't have any, you know, if my map sensor is clean and as long as I'm getting, you know, my map, you know, or however my sensors are working. If I'm running a map sensor, as long as it's, accurately calibrated, my feeling is going to always be consistent, especially in Subarus where, uh, at least the old Subarus, I don't know what we're running now because most of mine are the EG series, uh, 32 bits and 16 bits. Uh, so they have open loop fueling, which means pretty much once you have it set, as long as nothing changes, it will always run that same fueling mm -hmm. um, item. But for timing, if you have like a knock event or something happens, at least the knock sensor will go off and pull the timing down. So if I give the vehicle too much timing, I at least have a, a back, like a backstop that says, okay, this sensor will give me feedback and kind of take my timing back off. Um, part of this may be from my street tuning where I don't necessarily had a lot of, you know, dynoing. Yes, I could run the vehicle on the same road and kind of reference, um, reference points. But for the most part, I was using a lot of feedback off that knock sensor to know, when I was putting the vehicle in some detrimental state. Um, I felt like the, the timing strategy on the Subarus was relatively conservative, so it would pull timing relatively easy. So when I was, so for street tuning, um, I would set the fueling typically on the richer end. So I think I targeted maybe like 11, 11 twos after off of, so say like, a, and some of this also goes with boost. So we're starting to go into very dynamic ranges where if you have higher boot, like you have small turbo that's really peaky on the boost, I'm going to run really rich at peak boost and then taper down the air fuels to say be leaner at the higher ends. And then, um, so kind of a, t a tapered range in my fueling and then the timing would go according to kind of how, how it would make power. Obviously if I was getting like a significant quantity of knock, I wasn't going to keep adding timing. I was going to pull mm -hmm. timing and stuff like that. Um, so yeah. That's kind of the strategy I, I, I went with. Um, and again, like you said, you know, fueling, I try to typically go on the, you know, cause these, these are street cars or for Kendall's car, it's a race car, um, time attack. So I typically always edged on the side of being more conservative on the, the fueling and then let the timing kind of fall where it was, you know, however it made the best power. Like, well, for us it'd be knock sensors and then, dynoing for mm -hmm. best power yeah yeah i'll say you know i i think the 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 question for me is more like wow what's your approach do you like running more timing uh and when you do that do you richen up the mixture i'll say um i i approach those things totally independently of one another again it's for me it's more about like is he doing time attack i want it i want it rich um and and timing itself i think there is a game on the dyno that people play and it's like how can we get the last three horsepower? And th that game, usually there's someone in the room that's saying, hey, if you lean it, if you richen it up, you can give it another degree of timing. I don't find that to be the case. We've actually done an example. Uh, I watched Brian Macy. He's this really great LS tuner out of Lake Havasu also. He's a teacher for EFI University. We, uh, we had a guy who asked on the dyno, it was a Yaris with a Motec, by the way. Uh, he was asking, <laughs> how, my, my tuner says that he can run me richer and give me some timing. But I think, but I keep seeing knock. 
is it okay to run richer and take get and get rid of the 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 knock that way and keep going with timing and Brian was like I don't know what let's find out and so what we did was we held the car I believe it was around 4,000 rpms wide open throttle and uh, at it was uh, 13 to 1 was it was an NA car so it was sitting at 13 to 1 and we just steady state held it and uh, he said just start giving it timing until it knocks really loud and so we when we got to about 34 degrees 38 no 38 degrees it started pinging and at about 43 it was just sounding like a bag of rocks in a tin can and we just held it and the and the guy was like okay do you want me to let off now and brian said no i want you to richen it up until it stops knocking and we took it all the way down to nine to one it never stopped making anything but that bag of rocks noises and then at nine to one we took the timing back down and it stopped knocking at about 37 degrees so it's only in these types of environments where you have carte blanche to destroy whatever you need to to learn what you need to learn uh, that you can make these sort of wild experiments that you would never do to a customer car but that taught me to stop thinking that way and to stop being on the dyno and saying hey if I lean it out a little bit maybe I'll get a little more or I can I, I can run lower timing and make more power really they're two independent things and you should I, I personally think of fuel as mainly and it's true I could lean out and get maybe five horsepower in most situations but that's independent to what I can do with the timing. The timing is what it is. I had a car the other day, I hate to admit it, but there was no knock. I forgot to turn on the dyno fan and I lost 30 horsepower um, due to heat soak on that one pull with no knock. And it was the same timing as the pull before it with, uh, with an intercooler fan. And, and it really, even that heat didn't have anything to do with it. And we were on 91, so I was amazed it didn't start knocking with the added heat of, of the intercooler, but it was a big front mount and it had the room fan going. But um, yeah, I think timing is timing. Uh, it's, not as, it's not as dependent on air fuel ratios uh, as to whether it'll start or stop knocking. So I, I try to, I'll say engines, some engines like it much uh, leaner than other engines. Some engines I run fuel around and they don't seem to make as big a difference in power. So I will use that for a small difference, but I, I try to separate the ideas and, and I don't try to push a car by using one facet to push another facet. Like, ooh, we're gonna run low boost and a lot of timing on this one. Um, I'll, I'll play with all three and juggle them around and push and pull all the levers, whether it's boost, fuel, timing, cam timing, until I find something an engine likes. And sometimes there's some weird combinations that some engines like. I won't say Subarus, but I'll say, um, in general, if I'm playing with like a BMW engine or something like that, some of those engines and direct inject engines, you'll find some interesting things that help you make power that, that don't seem to matter on these EJs or other port injected engines, um, for sure. So <laughs> you kind of touched on this one already. You're like one step ahead of me on, on everything was holding fueling constant. Um, when, if you were to approach, uh, I'm, uh, let's say my time attack car and I come in and I say someone on the internet is at 33 pounds of boost and therefore I need to be at 33 pounds of boost. But would you say that, that you care at all about the boost level versus the horsepower if you know that you can run the ignition timing uh, more aggressive than that car and I could be at 27 pounds and make 600 horsepower versus being at 33 and you know uh, five degrees less time i'd certainly listen to the person on the internet and give it a shot and try to run the, you know the you know i'll say the customer is always right right so you gotta <laughs> right. take their dino right. money and you try their experiment and you say hey did that work better or worse than what we're doing and often unfortunately it, in my dino shop because we're at five thousand feet um none of that's even possible like people will come in with uh, like, hey, they said that I should run this turbo at this boost level, and you can just show them it doesn't even do that at this altitude. And then you start talking about pressure ratios to them because compressor maps, and you say, hey, what they really meant was this, compre this, this compressor map works at this pressure ratio really well, and look at that, it's, it's exactly at sea level what they said it would be, uh, but look at up here, it's nowhere near that. And so they get a little sad that way, but it's, um, but it's at least using science as an initial approach. I'll say I've, I, uh, at altitude, I think I can, I can, I push harder than the compressor maps say I should with good results, but um, we're usually using high octane fuels like ethanol. Um, but I do use those compressor maps as a starting point and as a place to make people understand 
um, the reality of how air works and how uh, what we're really trying to do here is move uh, different amounts of, of mass of, of chemicals in order to mix them together and, and garner energy out of them, right? <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a, I almost had a plug for Borg Warner there in their Airworks turbos. Oh, I'm yeah. wondering if that's how the name originated. It's <laughs> <laughs> how air works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things uh, Nick and I were talking about before just putting this whole uh, podcast together with you was one of the best things we've seen on the internet is exactly that where someone mentions, you know, it's always how much boost are you running? Uh -huh. And that is their measure of how much horsepower you're running. And, uh, you know, we, we are in, in kind of a different mindset where, you know, I get to work with turbos every day. So, Oh yeah. I know that means almost nothing. The boost. Level. Oh yeah. Especially if you have like uh, the, the one was, you know, what's interesting is your first car Subaru that you bought. Um, John had bought a set of Cosworth heads. He started out with a Cosworth block and stock heads. And then he went to Cosworth heads and we were on an early 35 hour turbo and we were running about 29 pounds. That's all it would make at this altitude. It was a Garrett first gen, uh, 35 hour on an 82 AR housing with a T4 flange, I believe. And it would, um, it would only make 29 pounds up here and I could make like almost 500 horsepower. This was back in the day. And we were, we were, I don't even know if we were running ethanol at the time. I think we were. Yeah. Yeah. It was on E85 when I got it. So yeah. And, and so he bought these Cosworth heads and he came back and we were all of a sudden at 535 horsepower or something. And the boost dropped to like 27, 26 pounds. And that's all he could see. He was like, oh, I lost boost. And I was like, no, it's going through the heads now into the engine. Boost is a measure of restriction at your manifold. <laughs> like that's all you were looking at is, is that. But now you can see it's going into the engine because the wheel power is up. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a hard conversation, but I think he wanted more boost anyway. And, and, and sometimes some turbos, you can do that. You can increase the VE and raise the boost at the same time. And that's when it really just makes some good stuff happen. Yeah. When you have a, a nice wide and tall compressor map, you can run yes. all the flow with all the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually really surprised you remember as much about that car because those <laughs> were like all dead on. Like, it was right there at that horsepower. It was like high 520s or something when I, I think on it. I think I remember the first 10 years of my tuning better than the second 10 years. <laughs> like at this point, I just rely on the dyno to, to have everything for me. But I, yeah, the first 10 years, I would show people those, those, uh, those sort of golden cars. That was one of the great cars that we built at Super Repair. And it was like, oh, yeah, I got to find this in the dyno, you know, the old dyno. And I knew how to access that data on my Windows 95 dyno. Um, we were in our in the intro the last uh, episode we recorded we were uh i was talking nick through that whole car and, and what happened with it and how you know that it did like an 11 0 at bandamir in 2012 or something uh-huh like and and back then that was unheard of there was a handful of guys with like just a crest 500 wheel horsepower in a subaru back then was next to impossible and now it's hilarious because it's like ordering at a restaurant you just need this engine with these head studs and this turbo kit and like boom done everyone's doing it yeah 500 is entry level almost yeah it's true now people are trying to push into the 700 plus range and with iag reliability is up though i mean that's the big thing is we have good engine knowledge now i think it, it was amazing i remember at the beginning even I think when we were getting into this, the, the even the Supras were trying to hit 800, and nowadays you have GTRs trying to hit 4,000. Yeah, know, it's like wow, it's absolutely insane. Everybody's moved up. <laughs> Do you have any other? Uh, well, <laughs> we're, we're glad we were able to get you on here, and it's been good talking to you. Yeah, I'm like a big acid trip, like just talking to me. I just like go into these weird little oh, that's Newtonian. What, that's exactly things. what you want, especially in. Uh, <laughs> In a podcast where a person doesn't get to, we're trying to pick your brain because a normal person doesn't get that opportunity. Oh, yeah. So those are always the best people to talk oh, to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is what I do all day. I just think about weird shit. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, re I really enjoy it. Heck, I learned a lot myself. So <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks. It was nice to meet you, too. Yeah. yeah. Nice to meet you. I'm sure well. I'll see you in the Cobb Pro Tuner group someday. 